Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahosky. This is Season 2, Episode 9, in which I interview Dr. Sharon Durex about her book, Am I Just My Brain? Dr. Sharon Durex is an independent speaker and author, and also an adjunct lecturer at UCA, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Originally from a scientific background, she has a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge and has held research positions at the University of Oxford, UK, and the Medical College of Wisconsin in the US. Sharon is invited to speak and lecture in a variety of contexts in the UK, Europe, and North America. Sharon has appeared on several podcasts and radio programs, including Justin Brierley's program, Unbelievable, on Premier Christian Radio, and BBC, Radio 2 Good Morning Sunday, and Radio 4 Beyond Belief. Her topics of interest focus on science, theology, mind and soul, and the problem of evil. Her first book, Why? Looking at God, Evil, and Personal Suffering, published in 2013, won the prize for Best Book at the 2014 Speaking Volumes UK Christian Book Awards presented by Pam Rhodes. Why interweaves the stories of people who have suffered with a practical look at some why questions on suffering. Sharon's latest book, which we'll talk about today, Am I Just My Brain?, which was published in 2019, examines questions of human identity from the perspective of neuroscience, philosophy, and theology. Now, if you listen all the way through today's episode, you'll find out about Dr. Durex's latest, latest book that is coming out next month, February 2023. Uh, so please make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to, to hear about that book. It's on an excellent topic that I myself need to read more about. And I am super excited for y'all to listen. So I want you to jump right in. And as always, thank you so much for supporting our show. And God bless you. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahosky. I'm really excited today. I've been looking forward to this interview with my guest, Dr. Sharon Dirks, who's here with us today. So thank you, Dr. Dirks, so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I, I think we tried to do this interview back in December, but my whole family got sick. <laughs> so thank you <laughs> yeah. for, for making the time to come on. Uh, we are here today to talk about Dr. Dirks's book, uh, one of her books, Am I Just My Brain? Which uh, for those of you that follow Mythic Mission are probably familiar with my fascination and love of C.S. Lewis's writings as well as J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Lewis has an essay, uh, I was just telling Dr. Dirks before the show about this, called Meditation in a Tool Shed. For those of you that may have read this essay or are familiar with it, it's uh, I would describe it as an epistemological essay uh, for those of you that don't know, that's you know how the study of how we know, what we know, what is you know true knowledge, et cetera. And it's a it's a little essay, but this book by Dr. Dirks reminded me quite a bit of that essay. And there's a comment, uh, and I think you'll appreciate this, uh, Dr. Dirks, that that Lewis makes about I believe a neuroscientist or, or someone in that in the, some brain science, and he says the idea of you know thinking that if all thinking is simply a material event then that thought itself is a material event and therefore meaningless. Do I have that right? Oh, uh, very probably, yeah. But I mean, that that's, I think, the logic. I mean, and, and this is one of the main theses of your book, I would say, uh, is that, you know, the idea of reducing all thinking to just a, a biological event is is probably not the best explanation. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's probably capturing, capturing the heart of it. Okay. 
Well, so for those of you that want some extra reading, um, in addition to this excellent book by Dr. Dirks, Am I Just My Brain? Check out Lewis's essay as well. If you have not read Meditation in the Toolshed, I think you'll see a lot of synergy between these works. So, okay. Uh, we have uh, quite a few questions I want to get started and not take any more time uh, dawdling. So here we have uh, question number one. I think that many of my listeners have heard of you, but just for those that haven't, could you tell us a little bit about your background, especially your scientific background? Uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit just about the brain uh, as something we can all wonder at as Christians that you know God has made us, uh, fearfully and wonderfully made us. Yeah, thanks so much, um, Michael. I um, yeah, so I I uh, did a biochemistry undergrad in the UK at the University of Bristol. Um, I actually um, changed my beliefs about God. I became a follower of Jesus Christ as an undergrad, so I was studying the sciences, uh, the natural sciences during that time. And then um, via a year in industry, um, went on to do a PhD in brain imaging. Mm. Um, where I was looking at kind of methodology of what's happening in the brain in the late 1990s when this technology was really kind of just getting going and people were experimenting with what we can and can't measure and trying out different field strengths and all of that sort of thing. So I got to do a PhD while kind of functional MRI was still really in its genesis and, and getting going. Wow. Um, of course, today it's a lot more sophisticated um, I'm no longer a practicing scientist. I've been an apologist for for the last um, 15 years mm-hmm. um, and someone that tries to kind of, you know, share reasons why Christians believe what they believe. And mm-hmm. yeah, so but but obviously I still love my kind of roots in, in neuroscience and they really came into play in this book. Am I just my brain? Mm. Yeah, I, I had no idea that the MRI science was was that young. I mean, so is it the 1990s where it was really just flowering well, for the first time? The MRI itself has been around since the 60s so oh, in terms of okay. structural MRI, but in terms of functional MRI, looking at mm. activity in the brain when you give someone in the scanner a particular task to do, uh, that is something that the first experiments were published in the, in the 90, late 1980s, and oh, wow. they just figure out how to analyze it well in the early 90s and yeah it just sort of went from there that's incredible um i think it's a a wonderful thing for us to just pause and and maybe talk about the human brain for a moment um i think there is a tendency among some christians to sometimes edge to the other side and just to talk about the soul or the mind and to forget that the bible you know, consistently emphasizes that the uh, the beauty and wonder of the human body that God has created. Uh, so could you just tell us a little bit about it? I mean, whatever you think might be fascinating or relevant for our listeners. Absolutely. And, and of course, to underpin the fact that in arguing that we're not just our brains, I don't mm. want to undermine the, the notion that the brain is an absolutely extraordinary organ this thing that sits in our, our skulls um, mm. uses 20% of the whole of the body's energy um, despite being 75% water this kind of two pound organ um, is is it contains somewhere between 80 and 100 billion 
cells, neurons, each of which is connected to thousands of others and electricity travels between these at, at speeds of over uh, 250 miles an hour. Wow. And um, apparently at any one moment, you're powering enough electricity um, to, to sustain an LED light, you know, <laughs> and so it's an extraordinary thing. And of course, many people's whole lifetimes of work, lifetimes of work will be taken up studying the human brain. There's so much we still don't know, but what we mm. do know gives us great pause for a sense of awe and wonder at, yeah, the human brain. <laughs> yeah. I, I, wow. That's, that's amazing. I mean, you said 250 miles an hour. Oh, 50. I don't know the precise number, but very, no. very fast. And many, I, you know, so many connections. Right. Yes. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a great way to start our conversation and a perfect segue uh, for my next, my next question uh, about this notion uh, some, you know, would probably just generally call naturalism or materialism, the idea that we are just our brains. And of course, you know, this is a, a part of that larger philosophical view uh, where or when, um, maybe both, did this notion, is there a, a point in time we can pinpoint when this tendency to think we're just our brain began? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And the temptation can be to think that it has suddenly come to light with the rise of neuroscience and with the rise of techniques like brain imaging. Um, but of course, this is not a new question. You can trace it right back to the ancient world, even you know, in the time of the kind of philosophers, Aristotle and, and Plato, who themselves believed in an immaterial soul and mind, which we can come to in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, they themselves were defending a notion of the immaterial and the material against those that were what you would call atomists that believed in an entirely material reality, people like Lucretius and Epicurus and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I guess that, you know, materialism itself has its roots right back in antiquity. Wow. Um, there are some that, you know, could point to a number of moments in history where this idea that, you know, the brain explains everything can, can be kind of, it can be traced to that point. And one of those points is perhaps um, coming from Hippocrates, who is who was a physician in the 5th century BC, perhaps known for his um, Hippocratic Oath, uh, which mm -hmm. doctors still take today to do no harm. Well, he um, was studying epilepsy and he, he, um, he wrote a number of things, including a particular statement that says that from the brain and the brain only come our thoughts, emotions and so on. And this was um, this 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 phrase that from the brain and the brain alone mm -hmm. uh, is something that, uh, you know, has kind of uh, remained and kind of traveled uh, and been been uh, a contributor to this view. Of course, the point that he was making was that epilepsy is not due to a spiritual state, not mm. due to demon possession, um, right. but in fact, with an organic uh, disorder of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, different, uh, his words have, have been kind of taken in, in different ways by different people. So, so the sure. view is not new. It has its roots in the ancient world. Um, people might also point to Descartes in the, in the modern world, mm -hmm. um, in the Renaissance period, you know, separating out the material brain and the 
immaterial um, mind. But again, we can come to that later on. Yes. Um, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. I, I had a. I just had a thought. You know, it, it's something I hear often from my students. Uh, I think we hear it. You know, at largely across ubiquitously across culture. But the idea that, especially those that lived in the ancient world, the pre-modern world, were pre-scientific, superstitious morons that, you know, it used gods and other things to explain away things. And I, I think it's interesting to learn for people who take that maybe very simple, uh, broad approach that there were materialists even back then that were very sophisticated. You mentioned Epicurus, and I know, you know, some about Epicureanism and certainly had a, a very fleshed out, what sounds like very much a modern, you know, atheist view of things. Uh, mm. And so I think a lot of people miss that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, the, uh, yes, it's not a it's not a new thing. And of course, in parallel to that, you could point to, um, you know, people who actually held a theistic view who were highly kind of trained scientifically. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we fast forward a few hundred years, you have the, mm -hmm. you know, the um, the biographer uh, of Jesus' life, um, Luke, the physician who who actually <clears throat> was um, willing to uh, adopt a, who adopted a, you know, a theistic mindset, who believed in the supernatural as well as the natural, and yet was trained scientifically as well. And so you can find both examples, yeah. uh, both many kinds of example in the ancient world. I think that's very important. I think there's a tendency, perhaps in every age, to think that we're unique and that you know, these things have only happened to us so I think that's an excellent point to make. Thank you. Well, that is a great segue once again to talk a little bit more about this question that is the title of your book, Am I Just My Brain? It's something that sounds like a purely scientific question, uh, but why is it not? I mean, so you, you know, make this point early on in your book. Why is neuroscience alone not sufficient uh, to answer this question? Yeah, I mean, because the question, Am I Just My Brain?, is asking a question of identity. It's asking, what are we? What is the most important thing about us? Um, the most central, most important thing about human beings. Are we just primates? Are we machines? Are we souls longing to escape from our body and float off to heaven? Or what, what are we? Um, and those are not questions that can simply be answered by empiric measurements, or at least if you try and answer them empirically, you end up with an answer, but not necessarily a satisfying one. So mm -hmm. scientifically, we are, you know, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen and oxygen bound in all kinds of different ways. And um, we are kind of neurons and uh, electrical activity, chemical activity. Um, so you can come up with a certain amount of kind of uh, certain kind of response to that question, but does it actually existentially answer the question? And does it get to the heart of something that's satisfying when we ask, what are we? And I don't believe that it does. Um, and the reason it doesn't is because there's kind of something that it is like to be us that can't be captured scientifically. In a sense, it, some people will say even it lies beyond the capacity of the scientific method. You know, if you wanted to do a, a study of, of what it's like uh, for you to, I don't know, mark your next set of essays from your students, mm -hmm. 
we want to find out what it's like for you to go through that process. Well, we could take loads of amazing scientific measurements from your brain. Um, we could take some MRI scans, some functional MRI scans. We could take some EEG scans. Mm -hmm. And that would be really interesting scientifically, but it wouldn't tell us what it's like for you mm. to go through that process. For that, we have to ask you. And so we, we begin to see that there is something that it is like to be a human being mm -hmm. that can't simply be accessed by the scientific methods, which must mean there are other arguments and explanations that we can go to to help us really get at this question mm. what is what does it mean to be a human being um, yeah yeah oh so that reminds me uh, once again of lewis and his essay myth became fact i'm not sure if you're familiar with that one but uh he he says that we have a tragic dilemma and you're, you're kind of alluding to experience and consciousness i think which we'll get to um, and this reminds me of something he says. He says, we have a tragic dilemma that is either to taste and not to know or to know and not to taste. You know, while a man is in the embrace of pleasure or humor, uh, you know, he, he cannot think about it clearly. But when he's thinking about it, you know, he, he, he's not having the experience. Uh, and this mm -hmm. gets to talking about the qualia, which I have uh, coming up, yes. you know, the particular, I think you use the example of the smell of coffee that Mike yes. has, right? Well, exactly. And, and well, in, in, in a sense, the, the ultimate qualia is the, the qualia of what it's like to, to be you. And, I, you right. know, we can talk about it now because, um, sure. yeah. because, you know, if we live in a purely material universe, then, OK, take something like the smell of coffee, which I hope you I don't know if you drink coffee. I um, do. I, I certainly do. Um, Far too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too, yeah. Um, <laughs> And we have only the physical realm to describe mm. the smell of coffee. We only have material descriptions. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Um, you mm. know, we could offer someone the chemical structure of caffeine, but that doesn't really get you to the smell of coffee. Or we could offer someone, you know, a description of the physiology as we drink it and digest it, but it doesn't get you any closer to the smell of coffee. If you want to understand the smell of coffee, you actually need to smell it. Mm. And it can't be really reduced any further. And this is an example of a, a quail in its singular or the plural qualia, mm -hmm. where these life is full of qualitative experiences that are impossible to capture physically. We could talk about seeing colors or experiencing hearing music. Mm -hmm. And of course, the example that I just used with the, the marking of essays, the experience of what it is to be a human being, what it is to be Michael Jehovsky or Sharon Dirks, you know, mm -hmm. none of these things can be captured um, by empirical measurements. It seems to be the things that are most central, that most centrally make us who we are, mm -hmm. sit beyond the scientific method. And therefore, we need to be open to methods and um, skills and techniques and things from other realms that help us answer the question of human identity. Yeah, that uh, is a really profound thought to just talk about the idea of uh, an individual's consciousness and particular experience of the world. I, I don't think that's something that sometimes to me when I, when I hear, you know, materialistic people or, or naturalistic, you know, people who have that point of view speak about it, it, it just to them seems like a, a brute fact, you know, that we can, we can just explain this away 
you know, it just is, this is, you know, we just exist there, you know, there's no point in asking why. Uh, and I, I find that that's just not only an unsatisfactory answer, but it, it, it seems why, you know, and why, why do we just exist? I mean, there, there seems to be a inescapable why question there that I, I just think that sometimes the, I don't want to say the other side, but you know, the, the, the atheist worldview just doesn't seem to grasp. Uh, and that leads yeah. me to my next set of, it's, it's a question that has kind of multiple parts, but I myself, uh, and I, I love JP Moreland. I, I read, you know, read most of his books uh, as well. And I know he talks a lot about this. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with his work as well. I, I have some confusion, not only just with the difference between the mind and the brain, but I, I kind of wrote in my notes here, mind, brain, soul, consciousness, you know, some of these terms seem to overlap for me. I like to get some clarity. Maybe we can just start maybe defining yeah. our terms. Absolutely. And of course, but it's important to remember, it depends who you're speaking to. Are you speaking right. to a neuroscientist? Are you speaking to a skeptic? Are you speaking to a theologian? You know, are you speaking to a psychologist? Mm -hmm. You know, it, and of course, different people have different ways of understanding these incredibly complex terms. Of course. Um, at its most simple level, um, the, the brain and the mind, I'll start there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the brain is the physical thing that sits inside your skull with everything that that involves. So the neurons, the chemicals, the hormones, the synapses, the transmitters, all of that is the brain. And that is the physical substance that sits in your skull. Um, the mind is um, the the capacity that we have for thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories. And these are kind of subjectively experienced. And of course, what we know very clearly is that mind and brain are connected. Mm -hmm. They are integrated. You know, if you put someone in an MRI scanner, you give them a, an activity to do, what you see is their brain, brain regions and networks light up. Mm -hmm. because they're using their mind their brain lights up these two things are connected if you sometimes damage the brain or, or have a disorder of the brain the mind can be affected or in you know fetal development as the brain grows and develops the the capacity of the fetus and their mind grows and develops and we see that through child development and so on um, so clearly mind and brain are very, very strongly integrated and connected. But of course, that doesn't mean they're synonymous. So that's mind and that's mind and brain. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps at the heart of this whole conversation is what is the relationship between those two things? How do you get from neurons to what it's like to be you? Well, sure. Um, and pardon, yeah. I'm sorry. I just wanted to interject very quickly. If someone could just say, with looking at the the uh, the brain regions lighting up that that is our our mind i mean our brain is our mind and of course that's one of the perspectives isn't it it is and it's the one that kind of was the starting point for writing my book am i just my brain there is the view that we are just our brains and mm -hmm. you know that, that mind is brain which actually what that that view at its most extreme and i'm not saying it's the only view but the most extreme form which would be a a reductive physicalist approach which says that the mind is reducible to the brain and mm. its activity um but essentially that that view is saying that there isn't something that it is like to be you there is only mm. brain activity which actually becomes a logically kind of 
self-defeating argument because the person expressing it is saying my first person perspective on the world is that there is no first person perspective there is only activity of the brain and and so you end up just kind of going around in philosophical circles and not being able to say anything of meaning And, and of course this doesn't live up to our our lived experience of the world is that we live as though there is something that it is to be us of course Um, yes that makes perfect sense yeah so Mm. yeah so that's kind of mind mind and brain um of course soul is is uh another kind of question altogether Mm. and, and, and i guess for the skeptic thinking about this question am i just my brain they might put mind and soul in the same category in the sense of the way that an opposing person might want to think about them is an an immaterial Mm -hmm. part of you that is central to who you are Mm. and the skeptic or the physicalist would want to say that that is just physical you you don't need to invoke some kind of non-physical component of the human being there is only the physical right um in that sense mind and soul are synonymous in in potentially in the eyes of of someone from that perspective Mm -hmm. but um those of us that have uh you know thought about philosophy and um might initially go to someone like Plato when we think about soul and so soul in that um context and um you know, we often might think of this immaterial part of us that one day will float off to heaven to mm. be with God. Um, and, and and actually for Plato, the soul didn't need a physical body. The soul was the person, but mm. didn't need a body, but could occupy a body, but could occupy any number of bodies mm. and, uh, and actually, you know, be reincarnated in, in, in a number of times. Um and in some ways, the the church has begun to think about soul in, in that way. Mm-hmm. But actually, I say that bears more rem- resemblance to uh, to um, Plato and Greek thought than it does to a Hebrew notion of soul. I agree. The Hebrew, the Hebrew notion of soul is much more integrated and holistic. Uh, it says in the Bible, uh, in the, the first chapters of Genesis, that God created the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the hebrew there is neshama and the 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 man became a living being Mm. and the hebrew word for being is nefesh which is the hebrew word for soul so the product of the dust of the ground and the breath of god is a living soul And, and so that points to a much more integrated view of what soul is and what human beings are and of course when you read later on that we are to love god with all of our heart and soul and strength or mind in the new testament that's not a measure of a particular segment of a person that you can slice out and that's actually um an uh, indicator of extent it's like you know when you come to god bring everything right uh, love with all that you have it's not a physical reference it's not a philosophical reference even mm. there's something really challenging in how the bible talks about the human being versus how we talk about it in philosophy yeah wow that was uh very helpful thank you for clarifying all that it, just one last riddle for me so the you were talking about our mind being the subjective you know experience of the world going going back to what we were discussing earlier 
would that be also synonymous with what consciousness is hypothetically? Yes. And, and I guess, okay. um, so someone like Dallas Willard would have said that the soul is the executive center. It's the, it's the kind of umbrella that integrates all of these other components mm -hmm. for those who recognize them as kind of distinct entities. And, and so, and so, we might say that consciousness is a property of the soul or consciousness is a property of the mind. Okay. Or that the mind is the bearer of consciousness. Um, uh, so that might be a way that we can think about that. Okay. Yeah, because I've, I've, my confusion began, uh, your book clarified so much, but I've read so much Christian literature and sometimes I feel that the, you know, the word psyche in, in Greek uh, can be, you know, translated into the English as either mind or soul. And I know that's probably seen through different worldview lenses when that, when that translation takes place, but doesn't it, isn't it a word that generally speaks to something immaterial? I think that um, it, it does, it, well, again, it, it depends who you ask and yeah. again, I think we are limited. We see, we do seem to have one, one word that kind of uh, uh, refers to, could refer to a number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the kind of the biblical anthropological view of human beings um, doesn't just refer to um, the um, kind of dualism in that sense. It's, it's overarching view is of holism, that we are integrated physical and spiritual beings. But there is also a dualism with regard to our relationship with what happens beyond the grave, that we will survive the death of our bodies. I think mm -hmm. that there's a, there's a lot that we could talk about there. Oh, and sure. Or I think that there is definitely um the, the view that there's an you know of course we believe that there is an immaterial world and an immaterial realm but mm -hmm. exactly how that how that looks and how that plays out um there are uh, lots of different views out there certainly well i know we've kind of tackled most of my next question but the one last thing i'd like to ask that's kind of on this subject of the soul uh, and mind is to just kind of walk through the the, the different theories that are out there today that explain, I think you list four, uh, if I'm not mistaken in your book, and you talk about mixed messages that we're hearing kind of like we're, we're living uh, in some cognitive dissonance almost, but we profess to believe one thing, but, you know, live a different way, you know, uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Do you mean about the soul or about consciousness? Or? I, I think so. Um, so, so first, if we could just review very briefly the, you know, for example, non-reductive physicalism for, for the audience so that people can know the difference between these different perspectives um, yeah. on the mind and body. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the first view that I um, outlined is that the view that essentially consciousness is brain activity, um, which is um, what I was saying earlier, that right. the view that there isn't something that it is like to be you, there's only your brain mm -hmm. but of course this this view doesn't seem to um, hold together logically because we live uh, well the person expressing it is saying there isn't something that it is to to be me which ends up kind of in meaninglessness um mm -hmm. and of course it doesn't make sense of how we live we live as though we are volitional agents that can actually bring about things in the world that we're not simply 
kind of automatons that are driven by forces beyond our control. Of course, there are all kinds of implications for determinism and free will. If if we believe that we are driven by our brains, then do we make meaningful decisions or do our mm. brains make them for us? Mm. Um, and of course, um, this is one of the reasons why uh, this view, you know, needs addressing because of the implications. So that's one view that consciousness is is brain activity mm -hmm. and it's not it's not uh, it doesn't hold together in in a watertight way so a second view is that uh consciousness emerges from the brain that the brain generates uh the conscious states that we that we find ourselves that we have um, but of course okay. you again come back to the hard problem of consciousness that that limits the first view as well how on earth do you bridge the chasm from um physical neurons to the experience of what it is like to mm. be you how on earth do you do that yeah. um, even, if, even if you're saying no but it's an emergent property as things become more and more complex somehow this 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 uh, experiential thing pops out at the end, you still have a mm -hmm. massive chasm to cross that can't be explained simply by the neuron neuronal activity alone. And there are many agnostics and atheists that acknowledge that physical descriptions alone are simply not enough to explain human consciousness. People Agreed. like David Chalmers, David Chalmers, Thomas Nagel, um, and so on. They, you know, Chalmers has coined this the hard problem, you mm. know, of consciousness. How on earth do you describe? Uh, account for this um, wow yeah and then the <clears throat> another view that i describe sorry mm -mm. drink there take your time <laughs> that consciousness is beyond the brain which is to say that there is a physical brain and um the the mind is a non-physical substance in its own right that can exist independently of the brain and mm -hmm. these two things are connected and interact sorry just take your time <clears throat> so this will be known as um substance dualism which you know essentially means two substances um right there are a number of theists and <clears throat> philosophers that hold this view today and they defend things like free will um uh, based on the idea that you know the the base the basis for our thoughts sits outside of our physical brains and brains don't think people think right. uh, and we can bring about changes uh, in in our body and brain and we can make meaningful decisions precisely because it's not all tied to a physical system um and so though you know that would be uh, another view yeah. Uh, that I put forward. And then a, a final view um, is the idea that, um, well, some some people say, look, if we try and start with the physical building blocks of the brain and build a bridge to human consciousness, we will never get there. Mm -hmm. So what if we start somewhere different? Why don't we assume consciousness to be fundamental and build a bridge back to the physical? And of course, that is essentially what the view of um, panpsychism is trying to do and panpsychism which again comes from the greek suke and um pan meaning all uh everything you know all uh, uh conscious uh, mm. 
it essentially says that you know there are conscious elements um, woven into the physical world that everything it has conscious every physical thing has conscious properties kind of built into it and hmm. so um, all living things possess uh, conscious properties including down to the atomic scale and someone like Philip Goff would describe even quarks and electrons as having unimaginably simple forms of consciousness and so they solve the hard problem if you like by saying consciousness is fundamental to the universe wow so if they can't yeah go on oh so sorry uh if they can't explain how consciousness you know emerges from the physical brain then they just assume consciousness and then that that seems like a very impossible leap almost and it sounds a lot like buddhism or, or well, I, other i mean i think that that those of this view are not saying they're, they're saying that any attempt to explain human consciousness from physical billing blocks is futile. You can't right. get there. And therefore, we need to start our argument. We need to build a case from a different starting point. And they mm -hmm. say, why, why don't we start with consciousness? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess uh, it, um, <clears throat> yeah, in some ways it it, it is, um, yeah, it, it kind of does have kind of Eastern kind of feel to it in some ways mm -hmm. um they don't obviously uh they might have different opinions about the nature of that consciousness um right i think that yeah there's also pantheism which would would be saying so pan panpsychism is saying the physical world has kind of conscious properties built into it i think that pantheism which underlies things like buddhism is saying that there is an external consciousness to which we can connect mm. um but that consciousness is impersonal it's not it's not a personal um thing it's it's actually a, an impersonal kind of consciousness that's right is, yeah. yeah okay I, I can see the difference now um so it's, it seems like i've pulled together multiple questions here i'm just skimming over i want to make sure that i uh have time to uh, to talk about some of the things we have planned towards the end i guess i could take this question and just ask you uh, as a christian apologist and, and obviously i am as well so i'm in you know agreement with your worldview but i'm interested just to know where you stand on this question. So with all those theories that you went through, you know, how would you uh, explain your, your informed opinion, your view on, on this issue, the, the hard problem or, or just the, the, the mind body problem in general? Yes. I, I to be honest, I, um, if I'm completely honest with you, I, mm -hmm. I am not sure that I have completely arrived at, my kind of definitive view uh, the, the question of consciousness and the human soul and mind and its relationship to, to the body is incredibly complex mm -hmm. um i i do obviously believe that um you know to be a christian is to believe that we don't just live in a material world there is an immaterial realm there is a supernatural realm i guess in addition to the natural mm -hmm. um but of course, exactly where the dualism lies between those two things is 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 where the kind of wrestle is. It seems to be that there are many aspects to life as a human being that are non-material. 
that are experiential. Um, but whether that means that that is kind of located in an immaterial soul, as in the kind of substance dualist view, I'm not sure if that equates to the same the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still I'm still wrestling with it to be honest, and I'm kind of happy to let people of different views uh, sit alongside each other and feel free to express their their position and their views. Mm. Um, I suppose where I really land is in its effectiveness in trying to uh, put forward another argument for the existence of God. So I think the place where I prefer to land and in it, in its all of its kind of strength is how does this help us? How does this whole question help us as we think about the existence of God? And I think I might be getting to one of your other questions. Yeah, that's me, okay. I find it more helpful to think, you know, there are all of these different theories. Clearly, we are not just our brains. That's a diminished view of look of human beings trying to look at them just through that one lens is not intellectually satisfying. It undermines our, our whole capacity to think and make meaningful decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, it clearly isn't existentially satisfying. There's so much more to us than just cell voltages and electrical activity. Mm -hmm. But the other views you know, all are all interesting. Um, I find that panpsychism is really helpful in a sense, because we, as a theist, as a Christian theist, we uh, agree that it is more helpful if we put consciousness as fundamental, if we start somewhere different from the physical building blocks. Um, and particularly as we begin to ask the question, why can we think at all? Mm -hmm. you know, even if we end up with this really elegant, neuroscience of human consciousness which explains perfectly the relationship between the mind and brain that still won't answer the question why can we think in the first place mm -hmm. where does that capacity come from right and um, if god doesn't exist then we live in a universe of non-conscious neurons and forces and cause and effect and atoms and, and, and material things. And people of that view were saying that somehow, anomalously, um, anomalously, yeah, that was the right word, um, <laughs> conscious beings have arisen from this non-conscious universe. Mm -hmm. that, and that could happen, but it's kind of surprising and it doesn't really seem to follow. But mm -hmm. if, God, if God exists, then the panpsychists, to some extent, are correct that consciousness has been kind of fundamental to the cosmos right from the beginning. Uh, but the theists would take that even further and say, we can say more about that. Mm -hmm. You know, the verses of the Bible say, in the beginning, God. In the beginning was a conscious being in the form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, being who uh, was con in is in a conscious community of love and complete in in themselves, mm -hmm. and so before there was anything material, there was God who is mm -hmm. conscious, and that God made the material world that we find ourselves in, and then human beings are uh, um, well emerged or appeared or whatever you want to say <laughs> about yeah. the of homo sapiens but mm -hmm. homo sapiens has arisen from within this universe that has already got conscious properties and a conscious being undergirding uh, it and, and therefore we actually which argument is more persuasive to you mm -hmm. 
for me, I'm more persuaded by the idea that God exists and, and actually has given us this capacity to be conscious, to think for ourselves. And yes. it's got this extraordinary application because a lot of people think to be a Christian is to be kind of um, to not use your mind. It's to be an irrational person of blind faith that believes in possible things that have no bearing on the world. But actually, uh, if God ex if this kind of God exists, then to be a Christian is to be a thinker. It is to use the very mind that God has given you because he has a mind <laughs> and right. we think he does. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it is actually central to what it means to be made by him that we use our minds. We don't just throw them out the window or, you know, right. just kind of. Yeah, anti-intellectualism is is yeah. always a, a an issue, even within the church. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's a beautiful apologetic. Um, may uh, find itself enshrined as a you know we have argument from desire, argument from morality. We need a, an argument from consciousness now. I think that's a that's a phenomenal way to frame it. I I think I misunderstood earlier about panpsychism, and now uh, it's much more clear to me. And I understand the strength of, of starting with consciousness, the idea that consciousness is a, a property that's woven into the fabric of the world, into the, the yes. reality God made. Absolutely. But of course, the Christian can go further than further mm -hmm. than that, say it's personal. It's not just an it. Right. It, it's a who. It's a in the beginning God. It's the logos. It's the kind of, you know, it's the I am. Yes. Uh, and and so and there you have the ultimate qualia, don't you? The Yahweh, yes. the great I am, yeah. um, and and that's extraordinary. And so I do believe that Christian theism can take pantheism where it's, in a sense, I believe where it needs to go actually, and say that 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 God is personal. He is Father. He is Son. Mm -hmm. He is Holy Spirit. These are not impersonal entities they are deeply personal and come alongside the person mm -hmm. and even to be a christian to turn to god mm -hmm. is to allow this god to kind of breathe into all of these different facets of the human makeup you know our body our soul our mind um there's something about it's to paul the apostle talk apostle paul in the new testament talks about have, us having the mind of christ and right. what that mean uh what does it mean to be a christian what happens to your mind when you turn to christ what happens to your brain what happens to your brain networks that's all fascinating to it me is. being born again really means to the whole person yeah i've never thought about it that way that that is fascinating wow uh i, I my, my mind is blown i guess that's an appropriate pun for today's episode <laughs> 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 or is it my yeah. brain that's blown? I don't know. That doesn't have the the, the same ring to it. Uh, no, and wow! Certainly, this book made my brain hurt a lot. I, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody should have uh, done a scan on your brain while while writing the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a it's a really uh, eye opening book. I really cannot recommend enough to my audience. And it's a short book, which I know some of us are very busy and say that we don't have a lot of time to read. But you know we we prioritize, right? We, we make the, the time for the things we care about the most. And I think there's a, a great way to love God with all your mind here in reading this book. And I, I highly commend it to you to, to take the time to read it or listen. Is it, is it available as an audiobook? I, I didn't check. Uh, not as an audio. It is as an ebook, and it's, yeah, obviously available as a regular book. As well. Right. 
And it's part of a, a series that I know John Lennox and others have contributed to, isn't that right? That's right. John Lennox, John Dixon, Amy Ewing, um, and Sam Albury. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, so if you go on Amazon, I just, just looking, uh, I think it's a six book series, five or six book series. So you can all check that out. I um, I don't want to, to take too much more of your time. I, I'm satisfied. I've got answers to all the, <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't go that far. I, I have many more questions, uh, but I think it would be an appropriate place to, to stop, but not before you share with our audience uh, about your latest book. So could you tell us the title, what it's about, when it's coming out, how to get it? Absolutely. So I have a new book coming out called Broken Planet, and this is about natural disasters. I actually have an earlier book on suffering. Um, and this is a, a book that takes that further and looks specifically at the question of earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, wildfires, hurricanes, and and so on, and, and also pandemics and, and physical diseases. How do we make sense of these that seem to happen to us rather than be because of our actions in the world? And, and so Broken Planet is looking at this and it's drawing from stories that haven't been told before from people who have firsthand experience of all kinds of natural disasters and oh trying to weave them in with responses mm. and thoughts. On this. Of course, there are no easy answers, but there are some some frameworks that we can put to the question that help us um, walk our way through it. Oh, that's excellent. I think that, uh, that that will definitely be on people's list that, that listen in to Mythic Mission and certainly is on mine. Uh, I've always uh, been uh, perplexed by the question of natural disasters, natural evil, as some will refer to it, and certainly is a topic we we all need to, uh, to look into for ourselves, but also... Um, you know, as a part of, once again, loving God with, with all of our, all of our nefesh, right? All of our, our all of us rather. <laughs> so yeah. excellent. Um, yeah. And that launches on the 16th of February. It's with IVP. So oh, okay. I'm hoping it will be available in the States as well as in the UK. Yes. Yeah. We'll be eagerly looking for it. It's just a couple of weeks away. Okay. Well, yeah. Dr. Durex, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful interview, uh, and I think that a lot of people are going to be blessed by it. So I just want to thank you once more. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next time on The Mission. <laughs>